I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, at the Hen House Studio. This week, I'm very pleased to bring you my conversation with with drummer and composer and general freak of music, Matt Chamberlain. Before we get going here, I need to reach out and ask for some help in keeping this podcast up and running. So far, I've been relying on one-time donations from all of you to help me with the show's overhead, which is much appreciated from all of those who have contributed, and you can still do that. But I've set up a new way that you can be an ongoing supporter of music makers and soul shakers. Over these final six episodes of season two, I'd like to encourage you all to head over to the Patreon page that I've started for the podcast. You'll find it at patreon.com slash makers and shakers. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash makers and shakers. Many of you know about Patreon already, but for those who don't, it's a way for you, the listener, to kick in and support the show on a monthly basis rather than a one-time donation, even if it's as little as a buck a month. It's simple and secure. I'd like to quickly explain what the overhead is on a show like this. For regular listeners, you'll know that the show's unique content is not just an interview format, but music clips are also used to demonstrate what we talk about on the show. And that's what makes the show cool and different, but it's what also makes the show on the production side time consuming. The editing and everything involved on an absolute minimal basis takes us about four to six hours per episode, which I currently pay someone to do. 
Then there's the hosting of the files, the launching and promotion of each episode, which, while not extravagant, is just an expense that I can no longer really handle on my own. I love doing this podcast, and so I'm throwing it out there to you, my listeners, from over the last couple of years, to help me by kicking in a little bit each month. As I said, even as little as a dollar a month would help. Um, There are some exclusive rewards that start happening at the $5 per month level and going up from there. And together we can keep the show going. So we're going to see how this Patreon campaign goes, and if we hit our goal over the next six weeks, or come pretty close, we will know that there are enough people out there willing and able to keep making it happen, and we'll keep bringing it on for you. Once again, the site can be found at patreon.com slash makersandshakers. As always, you can also make a one-time donation, if you'd rather, at my website and the podcast home at stevedawson.ca. And we can also always use your help in spreading the word by leaving us a review or comments on the iTunes store podcast page. Thank you all for listening and supporting. All right, Matt Chamberlain, I, I don't even know really where to begin. This guy's done so much amazing work over the years, I guess the past 30 years, really. He's been, well, I don't know if it's 30 yet. Maybe it is. Um, anyway, he uh, first popped onto the scene playing with um, Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. He was on their second record, Ghost of a Dog. And ever since then, he's basically been like one of the most creative and awesome recorded musicians in pop and jazz and improvised music, doing all kinds of stuff, ranging from extremely commercial pop stuff and country stuff to um, super experimental and improvised music all of which is pretty fascinating to get a chance to speak to him about. So Matt's originally from California, but spent a bunch of time in Seattle, which is when I got to meet him a couple times and do some playing and a bit of recording with him uh, while he was in Seattle and I was in Vancouver um, through my friend Keith Lowe, who's a great bass player that I played with a whole bunch back in Vancouver. Keith and Matt played in Fiona Apple's band together in the 90s, and um, that's how I got to know Matt a little bit was through Keith. So thanks, Keith. And I wanted to speak to Matt because of his involvement in so many amazing projects. If you don't know Matt's name, then you've been living under a strange rock and you should get out from under it. If you do, you don't need me to go through all the great stuff that he's done. But just pulling up his website here, um, some of the names that pop out are David Bowie, Fiona Apple, Soundgarden, Bill Frizzell, of course, Robert Fripp, Elton John, Brad Muldow. Pearl Jam, Randy Newman, and then he's done a bunch of country stuff with Miranda Lambert, Keith Urban, Cheryl Crow, and he's had a long-standing collaborative relationship with one of my production heroes, John Bryan. I also got to know of Matt through a band that he had, this crazy band called Critters Buggin', which was um, a Seattle mainstay. They did a bit of touring, but they were mostly known around Seattle, and I used to see them when I lived in Vancouver, um, and I used to go down and check them out in Seattle, and it was always super cool. Uh, That was with Brad Hauser and Mike Dillon. Uh, The sax player was Skerrick, and Matt was playing drums and all kinds of stuff, and they were always really crazy and creative and awesome. Matt moved down to L.A. about five or six years ago, and has become one of the most in-demand session drummers, really, of modern times. And he comes to Nashville a fair amount as well to do a lot of the top country stuff. I know he was here playing on um, Steven Tyler's new record, and as I mentioned, people like um, Miranda Lambert and Keith Urban and others like that. That stuff, I don't really listen to that kind of music that much, so I don't really keep up with his playing on the commercial country stuff, but a lot of the other records are things that I find fascinating. I love the Fiona Apple records. 
the Bowie stuff that he played on is super cool. He played on Randy Newman's newest record, which I think is an incredible record. And then all the great work that he's done with John Bryan, like the I Heart Huckabee soundtrack and a bunch of John Bryan's productions. He was also in the Saturday Night Live band way back in the early 90s, I guess, when he was quite a young pup and amazingly just sort of walked off of that gig. There was a bunch of older players in that band and I think Matt just wanted to be in a scene that was younger and more creative and took off to Seattle and the rest is history. So that's Matt in a very small nutshell. It's I got to tell you, it's tricky to talk with a guy like this because there's so many directions we could go and things to talk about. And we really didn't have a huge chunk of time. So there's obviously big gaping holes in where our conversation leads. And we sort of open up some cans of worms and go down rabbit holes and whatnot and and leave gaping holes in uh, other sections that would have, would have been nice to talk longer or more in depth about. People like this that I talk to, that their, their um, history is so immense and incredible, it's hard to even really know where to start. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And let's go now to my conversation with Matt Chamberlain. Thanks so much for doing this, man. How, how are things going these days? Uh, great. Just recording. Recording and traveling. Yeah, so give me, give me a little rundown on, on what your latest projects are. Um, I, I know you've always got something cooking on, on your own among countless sessions, and you've also been coming to Nashville quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, just give me, a, give me a little rundown on what you've been up to lately. Let's see, just did a couple. I sat in uh, with Chris Thiele on that show he's doing, the Prairie Home Companion. Did a couple of those with him. Yeah, that's awesome. Which was insane. I mean, he's, everybody, you know, if you've heard him, you know, how yeah. insane he is! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw there's a there's a clip of you playing with him. I think it's on your website even, where you're like you're reading the the a chart down because like the time's changing every four four or six bars or something, and it looks super intense. But I love the show, and I was curious about that actually. Like, where do you record? Do you do it in L.A. or do you go up to like Minnesota or something to do those? Well, the show moves around. But the ones I did were in St. Paul, Minnesota. They're always in different cities. I think I think that's the home base, though. I think St. Paul is the home base, and then you know they come to LA and do stuff in New York. And so, so everyone just convenes generally in in St. Paul, and you do the taping there, and then you go home. Is that? Uh, well, for the ones I did, yeah, yeah, the ones I did. Yeah. And um, okay, so, so, and you're not on all of them. No, it was just a couple. It was just a couple of them filling in for. Okay. I think he changes it up a lot. I think there's if you look every week there's different people in the in the band. So there's always like a rotating cast of, of folks. So just you know, doing that and then recording quite a bit. Um just did a bunch of work with this band called The Perfect Circle for their new record and here in LA and Is that a band you've played with a bunch or? No. No, just I've known about them forever since, you know, the nineties, but Okay. Um I'd never played with them. I just got a call out of the blue. So did some work with them and um, 
still going to Nashville a bit. Just did something uh, with, you know, that producer, Frank Liddell. He's yeah. he's doing this, he's producing this tribute to uh, Elton John. Oh, yeah. And we did a track, like there's different tracks with different artists. And uh, we did a, a track with Willie Nelson, which was really fun. Really? Oh, man. Um, did a track with him and a track with Miranda Lambert. And there's one that I'm really excited about that we did with uh, this band called Little Big Town. And it's all... It's all just them singing a cappella and drums. That's it. Really? <laughs> it's just tons of drums and vocals, and that's it. And some space noises, because we did Rocket Man. Really? <laughs> Wicked. They, they got some samples from the NASA space station, and I guess they spread it out on a keyboard and played it along with the vocals. Cool. That'll suit the vibe of that song. Yeah, yeah. And then here in town, I'm still continuing working on... My next solo record in between, you know, being session dude, trying to finish that. I was checking out the Comet B record uh, the last couple of days, which is awesome. I love that album. So is that a, is that pretty new or is that like a couple of years old or where, where does that fall into your whole thing? I came out last year, 2016. Yeah, I couldn't see a date on it. And is that like an ongoing project for you or is that just something that you did just like a studio thing that was like a one-off? It's uh, it's my third thing I've put out. I've put out three solo projects, and um, it's yeah. just ongoing. I just I'm always writing stuff, and I don't even know what it is. <laughs> it's just what I do. <laughs> it's just what I do when I'm when I'm alone. Tell me a bit about that process for you, because I know that you've always been really into experimenting with sonics and with and you do a lot of composing on keyboards and things like that. So, is it something that you like sit down and like work on? Uh, like as a writer or is it just like the first thing that comes out of you as a musician, just these ideas that you want to get down on tape or like what's the creative process for you for, for doing that kind of these projects that are like your own thing? Those are, I mean, it could be, it, it could happen anyway. I mean, it could be, I could get a, a drum sound that I really dig and I'll just play and record it because I love the way it sounds and then I'll yeah. write something around my improv and then edit that later or it could be something that I just composed on my laptop in Ableton Live yeah. and then I'll fit drums to that or it could just be a random uh, improv with I have a couple of modular synths that I love messing with because uh-huh. those things are like little improv in, improvisers they're just they just kind of do things you just kind of set up the conditions and right so, you know, I'll do stuff where I'll improvise with the modular synth and record all that and then chop that into something. And then um, sometimes I'll actually have an idea. <laughs> I'll just put it down. Um, but it's all the above. Just There's no rules. It all just kind of happens. And over time, I just collect things. Yeah. And I listen to them all and I think, well, maybe I should finish them and put them out because why not? Right. So that Comet B project, do you like? There's some other guys involved in that. Some of your some of your old um, bandmates, like from from um, Critters Buggin and stuff, right? So like, do you send files? Are you guys all in the room working together, or how do you do those projects? That was just, you know, I would I would do the the pieces. I would I would finish them as much as I could, and then I would just think of overdubs and just email them to like Mike Dillon, I just sent him some stuff and I said, Hey, just do whatever, whatever you, whatever you hear. Or like my friend Kave Brostigar, a great bass player. I just sent him some stuff and, uh-huh. you know, he put bass on it and sent it back. It was all, it was all through emails. 
we all just kind of oh, cool. collaborated like that. Yeah. And um, I would just take it and chop it up and use what I needed. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty fun to do it like that. Cause you never know what you're going to get. You just get an email back and you're like, wow, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's a pretty creative, fun way to do it actually. I mean, it takes a little longer and stuff, but it's pretty cool. And then do you like for your own drums and stuff, do you, is it just you in there or do you have somebody that comes in and helps you or do you just set everything up? Like, I mean, you, you know exactly how to get the sounds you want. Um, do you need somebody in there or do you just do it all yourself these days? Uh, generally I can do it myself, but, um, some, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, if I, like on this, this Comet B thing, there were a couple pieces that were completely finished and, uh, you know, they're about actually about four or five. And I thought, man, it'd just be so easy just to have a friend come over and engineer for me and we can just knock it out in a day yeah. instead of me sitting there trying to engineer and play at the same time. So with that, you know, I, yeah. I just called up a friend that's an engineer and he helped out. But generally, I'm, I'm in there by myself just, you know, having fun. So what's the scene like these days in L.A.? Like for kind of top call session guys like you, like you are, um, you know, like back in the old days, these guys were, were all running around like doing sessions, like numerous sessions a, a day. And, you know, I, I know things have changed a lot and, and it's kind of a different scene down there, but are you, are you working in the studios like most days these days, or is it more spread out as far as like the amount of sessions going on in LA? Um, well, the actually, you know, the sessions that happen in studios are, are for me at least pretty, they, they don't happen that often. Like, you know, going to an actual studio like Sunset Sound or, or, um, East West, maybe, you know, I'll go in for like two or three days every couple months. Like the, the majority of things I'm doing are at my studio where people come by and, oh, okay. um, we track stuff or, uh, people from uh, other places will send me tracks. You know, I just did a yep. thing with this composer named Ulfur Hansen, who's Icelandic, and he sent me a bunch of tracks, and I recorded a bunch of things and you know, uploaded them back to him. And uh, and actually, just last week, or actually a couple weeks ago, I I was doing this thing with this other Icelandic person, this. Uh, composer named Johan Johansson who mainly does soundtracks. He's known for uh, that movie Arrival oh, yeah. and uh, the theory of everything. He's amazing. But he's doing a new movie called Mandy with uh, this director named uh, Panos Kosmatos. And, uh, and it's, a pretty, it's a pretty experimental film from what I can tell. And it stars Nicolas Cage. Well, at least all the things I've seen was Nicholas in it for this movie. He, he's covered in blood, so <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm like sure. I'm not sure what the plot is, but he's been sending me tracks, and I've been overdubbing and sending them back. And then, and your input in that is it strictly music? Like you don't get to see the film then, it, it, or you just get little clips? Or how does it work? Like as far as not at this point, okay. they're all going to come out in in December, and we're going to do the majority of the of the drums at my studio uh next week actually. okay so the other bit of my session work is coming a lot from nashville i mean i spend you know a week a week out there every couple months yeah so between going to nashville my studio and then the random thing around la it's you know it's a nice yeah. little it's 
cycle of, of work. There's a lot of really creative stuff here in town in LA that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of soundtrack things and, and TV type stuff. So right. I think the singer songwriter thing or people, you know, people that write songs, it's way more strong in Nashville. That's just kind of, you know, that's, the, that's the tradition of that town, you know, songwriters and yeah. musicians that, that record songs. And, and here it's, uh, at least from what I can tell, it's more you know, soundtrack work. And, uh, if it is song based, it's, you know, pop or hip hop. Right. And, um, they're not necessarily looking for a performance. They're looking for the sound of a drum kit so they can chop it up and put it in with their programming, that kind of thing, <laughs> which is fun too. That's fun. As far as the Nashville thing goes, a lot of the LA guys are getting involved in, in country now because I don't know, maybe it's like the, the a, a genre that actually sells records still <laughs> or something. But do you find that there's a lot of LA people coming out here to Nashville that are bringing you along because you've worked with them before? Or is it more just like Nashville guys that you're working with? Well, I haven't, I haven't experienced anybody from LA hiring me. It's, Generally, when I go out there, I just work with um, Frank Liddell or Dan Huff. Yeah, those are the two guys that that that, that generally bring me out there. I love it because it's a skill set. I get to use a skill set that I've always used, which is learn a song and you know make it work and go for performances. Yeah, which you don't necessarily get too much of. You know, in LA, at least my experience hasn't been that. It's more edited and cut up in, in LA, whereas in Nashville you find it's more of like an actual performance. Uh, yeah, at least for the people I'm working with, they, they hear yeah. performance, they're looking for emotion, they're looking for you to craft a part around the song and make it happen, and then they get it. You know, if you get a great take, they understand. It's like, wow, that was a great take. And that's what I grew up doing, was learning songs and playing them and trying to make them, yeah. make them work emotionally and uh, you know, and all that. So, uh, that's why I, I dig it. I love it. It's, uh, you know, and it just happens to be country, which to me makes me scratch my head a lot of times. Cause it's really not country that I know <laughs> that I grew up on, but it's, it's just songwriting with, you know, uh, lyrics maybe about whiskey yeah. or a pickup truck or something. <laughs> 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 you know, that's, that's like popular country, but it, but it's, 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 a, it's rock. It's music. a limited palette it's sometimes like, in that it's way. rock music. Yeah. It's, with, yeah. You know, maybe the instrumentation's a little different than a rock thing, but uh, it's the last place where you can, as a drummer, uh, play, uh, have a have a performance and play your instrument. And... When you do the big country sessions out here, uh, do you find that in general you're playing live with a full band yeah. as opposed to yeah. just playing to a click? And yeah, so I mean, that's my experience here. Is in general that that most things go down with, you know, drummer, bass player, guitar player, maybe the singer singing or maybe doing a scratch or something. But yeah, it's kind of nice to like have an actual band playing some music together, right? And everybody, and everybody there is so amazing. It's just easy. You just... Who are some of the guys that like, does Dan Huff play on the sessions that he produces or does he bring guitar players in? It changes here and there depending on the song, but like him and Frank, you know, they have, there's so many great players there. There's like um, Bukovic and Jed Hughes, yeah. Dirk, Dirk Bentley. Sorry. <laughs> we we yeah. just did a whole record. He's great, that guy. We, we just did this whole record up in Telluride, up in the mountains. And it was Jed Hughes oh, and cool. Ian Hutchick, who's, uh, he, who's actually a great mm-hmm. drummer, but he was playing bass and, uh, and keyboards. He's one okay. of those guys. He can play everything. You know, and these guys like Jed and Ian are younger. They're like in their 30s. You know, they're coming up and yeah, incredible. They're just 
they're just so creative and they understand songs and performance and tone. And there's a lot of guys like that in, in Nashville. And then there's sure. guys that come from more of the bluegrass uh, world, you know, like Brian Sutton and um, Critter and all and those Critter guys. And those guys, man, their time is just ridiculously great. You know, it's, you don't even need a click track. You just listen to those guys, you know. And they are a human click track. Yeah. 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 Because, yeah. you know, in bluegrass, obviously, they got to, they, they hold that shit down. And, and, and I can feel yeah, it. Yeah, man. Can... Yeah, they're the drum set. Like the between the mandolin and the guitar in a, in a bluegrass band, that's your drum kit. Yeah, I know. And they, when when I get to interface with great players like that, it's just so much fun. It's, it's just deep. Those guys, they they know where the pocket is, and it's just it's just so much fun. The country thing isn't totally new to you. Like you you go way back with. Um, I was looking through your discography too, and you go way back with like Keith Urban and Martina McBride. I, I saw their names come up like in the early two thousands. So going back like fifteen years, you've been involved in that kind of stuff at least, right? Like it's not it's nothing new to you. It goes in waves, you know. It'll go in waves. Like you know, I won't go there for a year, and then all of a sudden, I'll start going there. Or uh, I mean, it's just it's pretty right. random. I mean, it's all. You know, being being hired as a session musician is, at least in my my experience, it's it's pretty random. It kind of goes in cycles, you know. And if you're if you get along with somebody yeah. and you're lucky enough to get to work with them on more than one record, that's that's really fun, you know, because then develop a develop a bit of a rapport. Yeah, you get to develop a, a thing with them, you know. It's it's pretty cool. What's the equipment situation when you when you get asked to do like a modern country record? Do you, um, like, I guess if you're coming to Blackbird or something, do you just use drums that are there? Or do you have a, a kit that that you like that's, like, perfect for that kind of music? Or, uh, like, how do you roll with that these days? Well, it all depends. You know, it's all, like, uh, depending on the budget. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm showing up in a different city and I don't have any of my stuff with me, I just kind of default to whatever is around. <laughs> yeah, there's luckily a lot of... A lot of people, a lot of producers, a lot of guitar players, everybody has some kind of drum drum kit or some kind of cool right. thing. So, you know, sometimes I've been in situations where people just bring their stuff. Um, and you just make it work. I just discovered a couple of weeks ago, there's a, um, a new vintage drum shop that just opened up called Nelson Drum Company. They're over there in East Nashville by Moss Tacos. Oh, yeah. And uh, we, I stopped by there. And the guy who owns that place let me learn a bunch of stuff a couple of weeks ago. It was great. Cause oh, cool. He has some really great, great stuff in there. And uh, so it depends. Yeah, if, you, if you're a Blackbird, you don't need to go anywhere. They have everything. And as a matter of fact, I sent... <laughs> that place is nuts. Yeah, eh? I sold, actually sold John McBride like, God, like five or six kits about 10, 10 years ago. <laughs> so I have a bunch of my old yeah. stuff there, which is really fun to go and... Oh, perfect! So you can roll in and have your old, your old kits. Yeah, back. I can go and revisit my old, my old kits, and and he has like uh, <laughs> endless supply of other things. So I mean, yeah, when you go there, it's it's like Disneyland for vintage drums. That's for sure. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, you I noticed like started selling off a bunch of stuff. Is that something you've always done throughout your career? Is like compile a bunch of shit and then like get rid of a bunch of stuff that you're not using or whatever, or were you just purging at that point? Or is that just an ongoing thing for you? Never ending quest for different sounds. Yeah, that's what it is. I mean, after, if you've had this, I mean, mm -hmm. with me, when I have the same, the same drum sounds for more than like five or six years, 
when when you kind of get into like a yeah. a very comfortable place with sounds, you're like, oh, this snare drum does that and this and that. After a while, I just I just go, man, I need to change this shit up and yeah, maybe I'll you know it's just uh, out of necessity, out of I don't want to fall into the same exact thing all the time. I mean, right, drums do tend to all kind of generally sound the same, <laughs> you know, snare drum kinda with with the exception of you know the diameter and the depth and how you treat it. I mean, they all pretty close unless you have some extreme version of, of those drums, like, yeah, like those plastic snare drums, those Mastro snares from the sixties that are completely bizarre or like an 18 inch snare drum or you've got that massive snare drum too. Mm-hmm. Isn't it like a 20 inch snare or something that huge one? That yeah. It's got? an 18. It's an 18. Kind of, it kind of sounds like a detuned wind drum or something. Yeah. It's amazing. That thing. Yeah, I love, I love changing the sounds up fun. I can't imagine staying with the same exact thing for more than five or six years and just kind of get, yeah. t- or at least I do, I just get tired with it. I know there's some people that swear by certain things and they're like, I gotta have this drum. I gotta have this kick drum or this whatever. I don't really, I don't really care. <laughs> as long as it, if I hit it and uh, you can, you'll just make it, you'll make it work. If I hit it and it inspires me or, or if it makes me laugh, then I'll probably use it. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of the way I go. Is there a kit for you that you that you just keep coming back to, like the Craviato or a, a vintage Ludwig or anything that you just like never have got rid of that you always are like, man, that thing is the fucking bomb? Or- well, there's some there's some kits that just do a certain thing, like you know, I, I always say like the like a '60s Ludwig or you know the pre Ludwigs, like the WFLs. Those are kind of like the the Hoffner bases of drums and then, yeah, but, uh, but like a Gretsch round badge from the sixties, you know, like a six ply kit or, a, um, or even like a seventies Ludwig or more like the P base of drums. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are just, they just work and they always do the job. And, right. But if you're looking for something a little outside the box, there's, there's, there's a lot of options. And obviously the way they mic it too kind of dictates the sound you know, how, how the engineer treats the kit. Cause I've played on plenty of old radio Kings and fifties Gretsch kits. That, you know, they sound like they could be just any modern drum kit when you get the mix back of the record, you know? So just cause the way they're, the way it was done, yeah, just or, the way they mic it or yeah. uh, the way it gets mixed or, you know, just cause you're playing a forties radio King doesn't mean it's going to sound like a forties radio King. It'll sound like it can sound like a drum workshop kit. <laughs> From Guitar Center, yeah. depending on who yeah. likes it or how they mix it. Have you have you ever done a session and then they've like triggered samples using your playing? Has that ever happened where you you get a thing back and you're like, shit, that's not the sound at all that we had. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's super common in, oh, yeah. in popular music where mixers, you know, like the big name mixers, they all kind of have their samples that they they kind of stick in underneath the sounds to kind of enforce right the kicks or the snares beef up the you know like the um there's that you know that song i played on years ago with the wallflowers one headlight song oh yeah my my snare drum did not sound like that when we tracked when i got the record back i was like wow so was the snare drum sounds cool was that going on back then were they were they they weren't triggering a sample but were they messing with the sound or something in some way there, there were a couple boxes that yeah. you could just stick in the signal chain and it would just trigger a sample. And you can just kind of layer it in there. I think they've been doing it for even before that. I mean, that was that was only like mid-90s. I know 
in the eighties, they were doing it. Right. You know, people have been using like synthesizers too, you know, like, but even in the seventies, they were using the white noise on the, um, mini moog to trigger, you know, to have a snare drum trigger the white noise to give you more of that kind of sound under the snare or like right. maybe okay. the, yeah. or maybe the low pass yeah. filter to give you more boom on the kick drum and, you know, using the resonance and pretty, I, th- I think yeah. in pop music, drums have been, have, have generally been tweaked to hell and a lot of it's really cool for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I, mer- I remember talking to Tony Visconti years ago when I first met him because I was, a, uh, you know, obviously I'm a huge fan of like the, the T-Rex records he did and Bowie and all that. Yeah. And, uh, he was telling me like on the T-Rex records, you know, the tape formulas back then were so bad that by the time they went to mix the record after they had done all the overdubs, you could literally see through the tape, like all the oxide <laughs> wore off. And, and he said yeah. the sound of those records is them overcompensating with compression and EQ just to make the thing sound good. To bring some life back. Yeah. Really? <laughs> sound, those records sound incredible. But that's the sound of those records, you know, that are just kind of tweaked to hell. And I think that's kind of the history of, of rock music. You know, recorded rock music is, you know, it's never been perfect. It's always been slightly mm-hmm. tweaked in order to make it work. Yeah, um, yeah. And drums have always been the thing that get the most tweaked, it seems like. You know, it's like the... Well, there, there's so many elements. The sound of the kid is kind of defines the era. Right. You mentioned Tony Visconti, and I, I was curious about your session with him with Bowie. Uh, was that something that uh, came out of the blue, or had you played with Bowie before or was that just like a thing that just popped up and um that was kind of a combination of things I'd worked with him on a record in LA like a couple years before with Visconti or with with Visconti okay yeah and it was uh a singer songwriter but the night but the record never got released it was one of those things where we went in for four days and okay but we hit it off remember a couple years later he was about to start working with Bowie again. Yeah. And the guitar player that was going to be involved in it was my friend, David Torn, who uh, also thought it would be a good idea for me to play on it. So, you know, between David and Tony, they both kind of, you got the call. They both kind of rooted for me and had me show up with all my crap. <laughs> and started recording. Yeah. What was the session like as far as like the, the whole vibe in there and, and with Bowie, like, was he open to, ideas or and were you experimenting or was it like were the songs fully realized at that point or how did that session go down no the songs he was writing them every morning he'd wake up and write a song and then we'd have lunch and then we'd start tracking we were up at the studio in the catskills in upstate new york it was this place called Alaire studios Uh and it was like a like a retreat residential studio so we, we were all living there and it was just when I was there doing the drums, it was just uh, Bowie, Visconti, and I. And, and Tony was playing bass also as we were tracking. So it was pretty low-key, I, I think. Was Bowie playing guitar or piano or anything? Yeah, or was he just singing? Both. Both. He was playing. He had like a little keyboard there. He'd okay. kind of make a rough sketch of the song on, yeah. and he would record it to a click. And then I would just start adding drums and bass you know tony would play bass cool and we recorded it was that record called heathen and um yeah and tony wanted to do it to 16 track two inch analog so that that was pretty cool we tracked a tape and um yeah it was just kind of 
just try whatever you want. That's kind of the vibe it was. It was there was no agenda really. How long did you spend on that process? Like, did that go on for weeks or was it just a couple days? It was two weeks. Yeah, we were up there for two weeks. Wow. And he would write a couple songs or a song a day. There, there were plenty of songs that didn't make the record. So there's tons of music lying around somewhere. So the process started, though, with basically no material? Like, they just were like, okay, time to make a record, and he would write a song, you would record it, he'd write another song, you'd record yeah. that? Yeah, well, I think there was some of that, then there was some stuff that he might have been working on that he wanted to try to finish. That um, I know there was one song we did that had been floating around for like 15 years called uh, Bring, mm-hmm. I think it's called Bring Me the Disco King. We tried it and he finished the lyrics and had that guy, Mike Garson, the, you know, the keyboard player that played on Aladdin Sane, had him play the piano on it. Yeah. That, that got finished. And then uh, there were tons of other songs too that um, maybe he just didn't finish the lyrics or something or maybe he didn't think they were good enough, but everything sounded, it all sounded good to me. So <laughs> it, it was a fun process to watch. Were you a Bowie fan before that? Like, was it something that was like, do you ever find that intimidating when you, when you work with people like that, of that stature where you're like, holy shit, this is, I'm actually doing this with Bowie or, or have yeah. you gotten way past that. No, of course, of course. <laughs> you think that, you think, oh my God, this is that guy. But then once you start working with them, you realize that it's just, yeah. you know, you, well, first of all, you realize, or you hope that it, it'll, it works out that you're both on the same page with, you know, my, you know, like right. my suggestions, I hope resonate with what he's going for. So, you know, once you get past that point, then you're just, it's on, you know, you just keep generating ideas and start playing and, yeah. you know, he's, he's been through it enough. He's, he's made enough records at that point. He, he had made enough records to kind of know the whole process, you know, it wasn't a, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, it wasn't a mystery to him how things work. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a, a searching kind of thing where you're searching for a while and, and then voila, you yep. make a discovery and there it is. Or Like when you had to get to that point of like being on a certain wavelength with him where you could feel comfortable suggesting something, maybe something weird or crazy uh, and know that he was going to respond to it in some way. Like, did that take a little while or were you just like instantly kind of kindred spirits in that regard? It was pretty instant. I mean, he, that's kind of what he's into. And that, I mean, that's what he, that's what his whole career right. has been. So it wasn't a big deal for him to, hear some you know weird drum sound or you know we had uh tony viscani had, had bought brian eno's ems synthy the um you know that synth that eno used on all the roxy music stuff and early yeah early bowie and early they had that there so i was able to run my drums through it and oh, cool. tweak it out and, really um, we did a lot of stuff trying to make the drums odd sounding and, and that's kind of what he's i mean he's always done that i mean there were like on uh, Lodger and he has, and, yeah. uh, you know, like those Berlin era records, Viscani was running the snare drums through those even tied harmonizers and pitching the drum, you know, pitching the snare drums down. And it's always been part of his thing, the experiment. So can we talk a, a, a bit about your background and, and stuff? Like I, I know you grew up in California and, and from what I have read and looked at with you, 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 you weren't like a super early starter. Like I think you started playing when you were 14 or 15 or something. Um, do you remember like what got you into playing drums and your earliest kind of experiences 
Yeah, it was just, uh, there was just my, you know, I grew up in San Pedro and there were just so many people playing music everywhere. There was bands, all my friends were in bands that yeah. played guitar. Or my, my best friend's older brother had a band. We'd sit around and watch him rehearse yeah. and just, it just seemed completely natural. Just to, like the thing to do. Yeah, I mean, just everybody was doing it. It was really fun. Did you have a kit uh, lying around the house or anything? Or how did you get your hands on your first drum kit? That was the tricky part. All my friends had, had drum kits, so I would just, you know, we'd all hang out. and uh, I guess that was the thing we, yeah. we would do instead of, like, you know, now kids sit on their laptops. We'd just sit around on, on my friend's drum kit and listen to records and try to play along to them or, like, show each other drum licks or just geek out, like, air drum uh-huh. to rush records or something. <laughs> 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 and just show each other. So what were the what were the things that you were really into when you were just starting? Like, like was Rush one of them? And, like, and what else were you really digging? Yeah, like, all the stuff that was on the radio. You know, I grew up, you know, I was born in 67, mm-hmm. so when I was a teenager, it was the early 80s. So, you know, it was everything that was on the radio and on, t- you know, MTV just started. So it was like... But you know, especially stuff with with killer drummers. You know, that's that's what we were into. We we're like, oh man, it's Stuart Copeland. Can you play the Stuart Copeland lick, yeah. or can you play the you know the drum solo from Okay Tom Sawyer, or you know, all, all my friends that played drums, we'd all just get <laughs> together and try to figure stuff out. So Rush and the Police, and were there any other ones that were particularly big big drummer influences for you in those days? Yeah, you know, I can. You know, I grew up in a in that in San Pedro, so it wasn't like a big at least for me, it wasn't a big a music town as far as like seeing things or being turned on to things. You just kind of had to hear about them from somebody. And yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I had, a, I had a friend who was really into like prog rock and like Genesis and Peter Gabriel and um, Gentle Giant and all that stuff and I was just, I had to go over to his house and he'd play me records. And I was like, man, what is this? This is crazy. <laughs> or, or somebody's older brother, like, uh, would be into Frank Zappa or something. And he'd play you like, you know, live in New York. Right. So you check out the black page. You ever heard the black page? And I'm like, no. And he'd play it for you and you just go, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> That's a mind opener. You know, like I remember a friend had Billy Cobham's first solo record, Spectrum which you know, had, had... Oh, yeah, Spectrum. That's a wicked yeah, record. Yeah, with like, Tommy Bolin playing guitar on it and just, holy yeah. crap. Like, it's a rockin' little... Yeah. yeah it's just like going, you know, if you're like 14 years old, you're just thinking, how is that even possible? Like, how is that guy playing 
Yeah. Bam. Like, what is going on there? So I just saw my friend's bands play. You know, they'd play like Iron Maiden and and, <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin. You know, and but to hear hear like yeah that kind of stuff was just like man, what is e- I don't even know what was going on. Didn't even know how to like process it. Like, what? How is that even possible? Was Bonham a big one for you? Like, yeah, he still is. He's still a big one. All those classic rock bands, are, they all have a unique thing that you can definitely learn something from. That's for sure. And and the one thing I do, <laughs> the one thing I've always learned from those guys is that they couldn't be replaced. That, that's the thing is like they're they tried to replace uh, Keith Moon, didn't work so good. I don't think, in my opinion. Right. Um, you can't replace John Bonham. No, I would. You agree. can't take Stuart Copeland out of the police. No. You can't. I mean, it's just there's you know it, they were so unique. Rush without Neil Pert, forget it. Yeah, yeah, but but by the same um, argument, you can't really have them play in any other situation effectively either, which is so interesting. <laughs> right. like, you know, if you ever heard Neil Pert try to play outside of Rush, yeah. it's like, oh man, cool. Go back to Rush, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a fan. I mean, he's one of my heroes. So you know, I'm not dissing him at all. It's just mm-hmm. I've heard him play other things, and I'm like, you know. I know what you mean. It's like that's he's designed. Yeah. He designed his playing around that band, and it's uh, it's his vocabulary. It's just incredible. It did, you know his style of drumming didn't exist really until he created it. And Stuart Copeland's like that too. Yeah. Like that's uh, like, no, nobody was doing that ever. Yeah, these guys created their own language on a, on a basic drum kit, which everybody has. You know, it's like uh, mm-hmm. it's like it's like you know it's like creating your own uh, language on an acoustic piano, well, know, or a guitar, I guess. Well, Neil Peart doesn't exactly have a doesn't exactly have a traditional yeah, drum kit. Anymore, I know, but I guess I guess back in the day it was it was a little more traditional. Yeah, yeah. But just you know, having a kick in the snare and a right cymbal and hi hats and a couple crash cymbals, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe he has a few more toms than most people. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> a few. But generally, yeah. you know, it's a it's a drum kit. It's not it's not like he's playing a Harry Parched right. instrument or something. At that point, were you taking lessons from anybody or were you just totally self-taught or what was your deal there? Yeah, I started taking lessons locally called the Musicians Union up here in LA and got some numbers to some people that, that I was reading in Modern Drummer Yeah, and uh, you know reading about. So I just call them up. I, you know, I called it. Uh, David Garibaldi was living here. Yeah, so so you studied with him. I did. I studied with David Garibaldi. There was um, Chad Wackerman. From Zappa's band, I took a couple lessons with him. Really, um, I would just kind of call people up randomly and just see if they were free and wanted to teach, you know. And um, there was a guy named Mark Craney. Remember Mark Craney? He no, who's that? He was like a seventies, seventies. I think he passed away in the eighties, but he was an incredible drummer. Okay, Chuck Flores, Chuck Flores, and Maurice Spivak were two older guys that were really amazing teachers. They they were kind of known as being amazing teachers. So Chuck Flores was, Chuck played a lot in the 50s during the whole West Coast jazz scene, you know, the 50s, like with Art Pepper. And, uh, but he became a, a great uh, teacher for uh, drum set independence, like, uh, you know, creating exercises to help with, uh, you know, independence between all your limbs, you know, have, having one limb play one thing while yeah. the other ones do something else. So I studied with him, for a couple of years, and yeah. then there was a guy named Murray Spivak who just taught hands. Really, he taught Louis Belson and a lot of orchestral snare drummers. He he was like 80 years old when I taught when I took lessons from him, and 
he grew up during the vaudeville era. Wow, intense. Yeah, he he was a funny character. You would just play snare drum with him? Just hands, just hand technique, yeah. And um, he always thought the drum kit was a passing fad. He always... He, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, um, I learned a lot from him. I didn't make it through his full... He had a, a whole three-and-a-half-year program. I ended up going to college before wow. I could finish up with him. But I, I yeah. learned enough to get me going, at least the, as far as just the basic, how to, how to hold a stick and the technique that he taught, which is really helpful and has helped me out this day. I mean, I, I use it every day. So you've retained a lot of that stuff too. Yeah. It's like, oh, uh, that's cool. just the technique of it helps execute things. And you know, it's just like anything. Like if you learn a certain technique on guitar or piano, it just helps you to not injure yourself and also just makes things easier. Right. But those are the guys. That's, oh, and, and, and Greg Bissonette, I also studied with. Gre- Greg Bissonette taught me how to read, how to read like big band charts and stuff like that. Cause oh, really? I was going to go to North Texas State University and they have a huge uh, band, you know, jazz band program there. Yeah, big band stuff, right? Yeah. And so yeah. he really worked on that stuff with me because he had gone there and uh, kind of knew what I was gonna have to deal with so uh so he was kind of prepping you for the but yeah you know, i went there and i failed I, I failed miserably at getting in any big bands did you and i just dropped out after a semester so really you know, it didn't work out <laughs> oh okay so what about studying with a guy like david garibaldi where he like were you into tower power at that point like did, were you aware of him as a player or was he just a guy you called randomly out of the out of the union book i'd read an interview with him in modern drummer and i learned about what he was doing um, his, his yeah. concepts that he was, you know, that, that he took and developed. And I just think, I just, I just thought it was a, mm-hmm. a great thing for me to learn. Cause it wasn't, I mean, it, it was more about playing grooves and displacing rhythms and oh, yeah. rhythmic concepts and uh, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. sound levels, like, you know, accented and unaccented notes and ghost notes and being aware of all that. And, um, you know, he's the master mm-hmm. of that. So he, gave me tons of exercises to work on and I still work on that stuff. I mean, so you were a good student. Yeah. I, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. I devoured that shit. It was just so much fun to learn. <laughs> <laughs> so you go off to Texas state and, and really you just lasted there for a semester and then you dropped out. Yeah. I mean, I, well, there was a couple issues with, you know, uh, uh, financial issues with staying in college. We just didn't, you know, my family just wasn't, equipped to deal with, you know, putting me up in a college and have, you know, so I just kind of just dropped out and lived there in town. And actually that was the best thing I could have done uh-huh. because I think I learned more playing around town with all the incredible musicians that were there than I did in uh-huh. school. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I learned more about playing with other people, you know, that's kind of what I learned. And, um, were you in regular bands there at that time or were you just sort of like picking up gigs with whoever you could play with? I was, uh, I had a couple ba- like, you know, it was always the original bands. I was always starting bands with friends and, uh, just playing around. And mm-hmm. then I ended up moving down into, into Dallas because North Texas state is in Denton. Yeah. A little bit north of Dallas. And so I, I moved down to Dallas into this area called deep Ellum, which at the time was just kind of border borderline rundown the hood kind of place. But a couple clubs opened up and, this whole music scene started down there with all these local bands and, you know, it was all original music and it was such a great, a great thing to be a part of because it was, you know, a proper music scene. There was a whole thing. And that's mm-hmm. where I, uh, I met, uh, um, 
you know, Edie Brickell and all those folks. And They were camped out in Dallas at that point? Is that where they were from originally? Yeah, they were just all my friends. They're just all like, we're all the same age. We're just all playing in clubs in that little part of town. And yeah. my roommate was the bass player. And uh, I was in another band called Ten Hands that was really yeah. doing well. And, you know, it was just a great, great time. Just play a lot of music, and there, there there were a lot of people that just wanted to get together in warehouses and just experiment and play and jam. And that's an important step to go through, I think, as a musician. It's like having that opportunity where you can just like hang out and jam and not have really expectations or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it was it was all experimental. We um, it just was a great time, I and mean, there was just no no rules. Tons of different people were yeah. playing music together that wouldn't normally play together, and. And at the time, there were a lot of bands touring that would come and play in this part of town. Like, you know, I saw like the bad, you know, bad brains and butthole surfers and James Addiction nice. when in Fishbone when they all first started. You know, they would come over to our our warehouse loft parties and jam and you know, it just it was just so much fun. It was like a proper little music scene. And then that Edie Brickell thing kind of took off when we put out the first record. How did you come to be a member of the New Bohemians? Uh, they were already playing as a band and you came in after the fact? or they, Their drummer got kicked out when they went to record their first record by the producer. Oh, okay. The producer kind of kicked them out and got a session dude. And, and uh, when they got back from doing their record, the, the drummer was like, screw you guys. <laughs> 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 and so I just, I ended up playing with them. So call Matt. So, <laughs> Yeah, I ended up auditioning. That um, record you did with them, Ghost of a Dog, that was their second record, I guess. Um, how, was that your first real like s- studio experience as far as making a record goes? The real, yeah, first real studio experience making a record that anybody really heard. I'd done yeah a bunch of recording in Dallas, like local projects and stuff, but it was all just local stuff. You know, nobody would would hear that. But but Ghost of a Dog is yeah, definitely my first real record that was put out on a record label that anybody paid attention to. What do you remember about that session, like about how it went down and, and what was memorable about that particular album? Since it was your first one, I'm sure you remember things about it. We recorded it in Woodstock at Bearsville Studios. Oh, cool. It was amazing to go, you know, we're in the woods as a band. Yeah. We got to rehearse for a couple of weeks and then we went in and tracked live. And Who produced that record? Uh, Tony Berg, who's still a good friend who I still work with. Um, and you tracked it live pretty much like with, was, was Edie singing it live as well and everything? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were a band, you know, we just did, we just did takes and, you know, obviously they fixed stuff after the fact if it wasn't what they intended and they overdubbed, but that's what we did. In those early days, were you able to get the sounds that you wanted out of a drum kit in the studio or was that something that you were still like just figuring out at that point? Oh God. Yeah. Like then I, you know, I was like 21 or something. I'd, I didn't know anything about I didn't know anything about how to do anything in the studio other than just put new heads. You know, I thought if you just put new heads on your drums and yeah. tuned them and played them, then everything would sound great. And that's generally true. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that's a good rule of thumb to start. Yeah, right? I, I just didn't know I didn't know how to like go for a certain type of sound. I just got my drum sound that I had and I played. Right. I remember those back then. I, I bought a new drum workshop kit. That was like in the late eighties and man, those drums, the, the early drum workshop stuff was so great. They sound so good. Yeah. I didn't really know much about recording. I just played drums and let them record me. And if they told me there was an issue with, uh, 
a tom or a snare drum, I'd put tape on it or change the head. <laughs> That's all I knew. Yeah. <laughs> so how did how did that gig, like I assume that you went out and toured and did a bunch of stuff, but how did that lead to um, getting the gig on Saturday Night Live? We opened up for Dylan on one of our tours and G.E. Smith was the guitar player with Dylan. Oh. We hit it off and just hung out a lot. It was actually after a couple years later. Was he doing the SNL gig at that point, or that was before he'd even got? No, that he was he gig? was doing it. He was doing it. Oh, okay. I think he was about to change up the whole band situation, and it just happened to be right when right when we broke up, right when Edie decided okay. to split, and so it was perfect timing. I just yeah. moved out there to New York and did the show for a season. Tell me what that was like. Like, do you as a musician in that? band the house band for snl would you work on the show for the whole week or do you just kind of like show up and do a bunch of stuff the day of or how does it actually work yeah most of the time with the exception of a couple shows it was show up saturday morning at 10 a.m and rehearse for a couple hours yeah you know if there were skits that we were a part of we'd rehearse that and then we'd take a lunch break and come back and we do two shows. There'd be the dress rehearsal show. Both both shows had audiences, so they're both exactly the same. It's just yeah. the second show was the one that was broadcast, okay. and it would have like you know it would have changes in it, like they'd cut certain skits out of the bit, or and then after that, I just drive home. <laughs> that was kind of it. And you had no further obligations. Sometimes I have to come down during the week to record some music for a, a, a okay. skit, but but that only happened a couple times. Most of the time, I just, it was just Saturday. You said come down. Were you not living in Manhattan at that point? No, I was living in Woodstock. Oh, you were? Oh, yeah. wow, okay. I, I love it there so much when we're doing that 80 record that you just moved, just moved there. there and, and I wanted to find a... Cheaper than Manhattan, too, I bet. Oh, God, yeah. And I just want, I couldn't find a place in Manhattan <laughs> or in Brooklyn where I could play drums and live in the same place. And I found a place up in the Catskills looking out over the Ashokan Reservoir for like... I think the rent on the house was like, you know, 600 bucks a month or something. Wicked. And, uh, and so all I would do is play drums and yeah. I had a mountain bike trail in my backyard. I go mountain bike down into town, get some coffee. Wicked. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Woodstock had, had no, or still has no shortage of amazing musicians living there that, yeah. you know, David Torn became a really good friend of mine during that time. That's when I met him. He was living there too? Yeah, he still lives there. He's been there for a long time. Oh, okay. And uh, I just go over his house, and I just learned so much from him because you know the whole looping thing, mm. the whole. He kind of turned you on to that. Yeah, he, he made me think that'd be a great thing to try to do with drones. Tony Levin was living there. Jerry Murata, um, Jack DeJanet. Really? Yeah, they're all still up there. Yeah. They all still live in Woodstock. They're all wow. But there's a okay. there's a great musical community up there, and and just recently, I think like in the past five or six years, tons of people have moved up there. Like all the guys from Modesky, Martin, and Wood are up there. My friend Marco Benevento moved up there. Right. You know, if you have if you have a family and you've been living in the city, you just kind of that's that, that's kind of it makes sense. You know, you go up there, you can yeah, you, know, you can get like a house and some land and maybe like another structure to have your instruments and to play music. And you know, for the price of like a yeah. tiny apartment in Manhattan, you can buy like this compound. that's what we all want really (laughs) that year that you were there like was the was the gig itself enjoyable like was it a cool thing to do or was it a pain in the ass or what was the vibe like on the actual show it was fun it was super fun um ge would invite different people to sit in for the pre-show 
like we do a little pre-show gig. Yeah. And, you know, we had people like uh-huh. uh, Charlie Musselwhite come down and uh, Johnny Winter. Wicked. And, uh, I mean, just all of these amazing blues guys would come and sit in with us and we'd, you know, we'd learn their music and play with them. We play a, like a like you know we play a half hour set before the show started for the audience. Oh, okay. All the little commercial breaks we do stuff too. But right. I was twenty one years old. Everybody in the band was in their late forties or fifties, and a lot of them gave me some really good advice. They said, "Man, you should be going out and playing some music. Do this gig when you're our age." <laughs> so really, I kind of took their I I took their advice and moved out to Seattle. So was that a hard thing to like, you know, like a solid paycheck and like a real gig, like you just walked away from that? Was that something that you had to think a lot about doing at that stage? Or were you just like young and crazy and just like, yeah, let's do it. No, let's get out of here. I, didn't, I didn't have any, I didn't have any debt or any overhead in my life. I could, I, it was easy enough. I just put, you know, all I owned was my drum kit, some clothes and a, and a futon and some records, you know, so hopped in my car yeah drove to... did you have a gig to go to in seattle or anything or like why like why seattle the summer before i moved out to new york i toured with pearl jam and we 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 right. hung out in seattle and rehearsed and i just loved it there i thought man this place is beautiful there's so many great musicians mm-hmm. and there's so many clubs and it's not it's not just grunge rock there, you know bill frizzell was living there and wayne horowitz and there, there was this whole experimental yeah. music scene there, as well as the hard rock thing. So, and there were plenty of places to play. So, and it was affordable, way more affordable than New York. So, it just made sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there were tons of people there my age at the time playing music. So I was like, shit, yeah. I'm gonna move there. And that's when I met Frizzell. <laughs> you know, I met Frizzell there, and um, like Aiden King, and yeah. um, there's like a whole world of creative music up there that's just so good was Danny Barnes there then too Danny was there I think he was in the bad livers back yeah. then he wasn't really around town he was probably touring more did you hook up with Skerrick right away yeah. like with yep. the with the Critters Buggin guys yeah, yeah. And, uh, was that kind of your main gig for for a chunk of time there in Seattle was Critters Buggin yeah we kind of made that work for a bit you know we had a little record deal where we could make our crazy records and we had a little tour yeah. tour support so we'd hop in the van and tour and you know there was that as well as just tons of other things going on around town just local fun gigs to do or I mean, you can just make something up and just book a gig, you know, that kind of thing. There was, there was no pressure to, like, you know, get people to show up at your gig. Sell tickets. and It was just like, make uh-huh. make some weird-ass music in this club. They're totally into it because uh, they're going to be open anyways. You might as well have some music going on. <laughs> and their overhead wasn't right. so insane. That band got pretty notorious, like, because, you know, I was living in Vancouver, and we used to come down. We, You know, I saw you guys a bunch of times in Seattle, back in the, I don't know what years exactly, but you guys were playing a lot and, and they're big audiences. Like you guys were doing really well as a band. I don't know if you did much outside of Seattle, but it was a cool thing going on there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we we did really well. Just, we, we never really hit the East Coast. We just do like West Coast tours. And maybe, you know, hit somewhere like in Arizona or something like that. I think we made it out to Texas a couple of times, but we would, uh, that's kind of what we would do. We'd just kind of play generally the Northwest through San Francisco and LA was always weird. We wouldn't always have good gigs down here. LA is, <laughs> it is weird. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we made that work somehow for quite a while. What was the thing that led to 
doing more sessions like stuff in LA and like I I think one of the first ones that I heard you on that was like a big thing was the Wallflowers record. How did all that stuff start? That was the bass player from the Wallflowers liked the E.B. Brickell record I played on and just reached out because they were looking for a drummer for their next record and they just reached out and asked me if I wanted to come to LA and hang with them and do some playing and uh oh okay and their manager also uh was managing or or discovered Fiona Apple was the same guy and so all Ah, that kind of stuff happened around the same time and that's where I met John Bryan I was on the Fiona Apple he was just like a local guitar player that had just moved to LA from from Boston he was just right. this dude that he looked like a homeless dude that would show up with a you know an old suitcase full of guitar pedals and <laughs> <laughs> he kind of still does look like a homeless dude but only now he has more shit. <laughs> <laughs> so were you working on those two projects at the same time, yeah. like the the title record and the Wallflowers? Yeah, it was, I think the uh, Fiona's like maybe just a little bit after we finished the Wallflowers, but it was within like the same couple years. Okay. I remember doing a Critters Bugging record out in Taos, and then when we finished that, I remember going and doing Fiona's record. So whatever year that was, I don't know, 97 okay. or something, 98. T-Bone Burnett produced the Wallflowers record. Was it John Bryan producing the, the Fiona Apple record? That first one he didn't produce. It was the manager. It was okay. a guy. He just played on it. He just played on it, but he did offer it. Oh, he okay. offered quite a bit of input, mainly... I mean, you can hear his his stamp on that music. He kind of yeah, just just with his instruments that he had lying around, those kind of made their way into all the songs and like the mellotrons and and all the crazy guitar sounds and shit. Yeah, uh, it, it was the that Chamberlain keyboard, which is basically a mellotron. It was that guy Patrick Warren. Patrick Warren, uh, like in the eighties, he had become really obsessed with those keyboards because they were super cheap. And I think he contacted... Right. Nobody wanted them anymore. Yeah, he contacted the Chamberlain family out here somewhere. Yeah, do you remember Michael Penn? Yeah. His first big hit, Patrick was in that band, and he played uh, Chamberlain on a lot of that stuff. And he he cut a hole on the top of the Chamberlain where the the wheel is, you know, the flywheel, and would stick his hand down in there and like bend the notes and kind of make it sound like a pedal steel. Yeah. You can sort of manipulate the speed of the, of the tape part of that. Right. Yeah. And he, Wicked. And he was the guy on the, on the Fiona, the first Fiona, and, you know, he had all, all those Chamberlain sounds. And back then that was pretty unique because nobody even, nobody played those things. Yeah. I mean, they were just these weird forgotten keyboards that people used to play. I think he bought them for like 300 bucks each. And, <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. now he just kind of sampled them all and he doesn't because they they were always breaking down and there was always issues with them. Pain in the ass to haul them around. Remember we did like Fiona's first tour. We went to Europe and I guess the, the voltage is different there. So it made the, 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 the motor turn at a different rate, a different yeah. speed. So all the, the pitch of the, all the pitches were out, were out. So we had to like oh modify the flywheel and do all this crazy shit. To, uh, yeah. Oh, temperamental, God. temperamental machines. Those were the first records, I think, that got me into doing sessions. Can you tell me about that the the Fiona session? Like, how how was that record done? Like, was it really experimental and done like real piece by piece, or were you playing as a band, or what was going on for that for that record? Well, the first one was very searching. It was a lot of searching because nobody knew like what her sound was. 
because when yeah when you listen to her demo tape of that stuff she could have easily been produced in the style of like an r&b diva you know she could have been like it could have been like mariah carey production of the 90s you know could have easily gone there right but we kept searching. We, yeah. we just kept going. I mean, we're, there were multiple sessions that we kept going back. You know, we'd record for four or five days and then they'd take a break for a month or a couple of weeks. And then we'd come back and record for four or five more days. Then we'd take a break. Just always searching for something, something unique uh-huh. because she didn't really have a sound. They were trying to, all of us together were just trying to create something different for her. So it wasn't just you know, girl singing. What was that process? Like, were you messing with your sounds or were you just like trying to, as a band, like figure out how to make her sound as cool and unique as she was? Yeah, we just tried different grooves. We tried different weird drums or odd miking or uh, different tempos. I mean, we tried everything, you know, it was just always until you until yeah. you hit on something that made everybody go, wow, that's, that's cool. Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's try this, you know, and it wasn't any agenda. Was she pretty open to any kind of ideas and direction that you may have had? Yeah, she was also really young. She was like 16 years old when we did that first record. So Seriously? She had never been in the studio before, Holy so shit. she didn't even know what was going on. She just thought, I think we just annoyed her. You know, she's like, God, you know, I think she was probably thinking, this is ridiculous. This is taking too long. How come my record isn't done? <laughs> she had never done a gig before. She just was making these. She was really? making these songs in her bedroom on her little boombox. You did a bunch of touring with her too, right? I did a couple of weeks with her on that first record, like promo stuff, and I didn't really tour oh, with her. Okay. I, on the second record, I did a little little touring with her, but she didn't want to tour because I think she toured her first record for like two years straight, and I think she was burnt on touring. So we only did like a month tour for her second record. Uh-huh. She just wasn't into it. That relationship that you've forged with John Bryan was like, that was a huge thing for, for me, like as a music fan, especially like, I don't know how much of that developed from the gigs you were doing at Largo and stuff like that, but I saw you there a few times and, uh, you know, you've you've done tons of records with him. I, I'd love to hear about some of your experiences with, with John and uh, doing soundtracks because uh, there's two in particular for me. I don't know if any stick out for you, but the ones that I, I, I really loved were, well, one of them is Punch Drunk Love, which you're featured on in a really abstract weird kind of way and and uh and then i heard huckabees was another big one for me which is sort of more song oriented i guess but um just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences doing film soundtrack work and how you like that compared to records and your experiences on those those particular um soundtracks Uh, that's a good question because those two soundtracks i know i'm on them and I'm not exactly sure what I did <laughs> because we did a bunch of like random sessions where we improvise. Oh, okay. And things. And um, I'm not, you know, I haven't actually listened to those soundtracks. So I'm not even sure. Punch Drunk is like, there's some sections of that movie where it's all just you. There's no melodic instrument at all. It's just like crazy percussion. Uh, I don't know if it's loop loop stuff or if it's live stuff, but I, I wondered if you were playing to picture, but, but maybe you weren't, maybe you were just totally improvising that music. Yeah. And I think a lot of that was Keltner. Oh, a lot yeah. of that stuff was like Jim, Jim and John. Yeah. There's a lot of marimba stuff, I think, right? There's like, there's some marimba, marimba but there's percussion and 
there's a lot of like distorted stuff that's pretty hard to tell exactly if it's drums or, or marimbas or what it is, but uh, um, you're definitely... Yeah, I'm not sure. You're definitely credited I'm not sure on, who, what I did. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember what I did, if I did anything, because I mean, during that period of time, John and I were doing so much stuff together. Yeah. We would just get together. We actually rented out a studio in Seattle for a month and just improvised every day for a month and recorded everything, so... Without a, I'm sure a lot of that got without a particular goal. You mean we were just we just thought it would be a good idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. <laughs> we, we had uh, we had Sebastian Steinberg, that bass player uh, uh-huh. friend of ours, and John and I, and we would just improvise, and then whoever was in town would stop by and play with us. Has that stuff ever like reared its head ever, or is it just sitting there as something that you did to experiment? I got my first solo record done during those sessions. They, oh, okay. All those guys played on my record. Yeah. And uh, I remember there was a Beck song from a movie that we were working on. Um, every, you know that song, Everybody? Oh. Something, Sometime, Everybody? Yeah. Nah, 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 the, that, off that song. Um, Eternal Sunshine, right? God, I'm so bad. I can't remember. It is. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> I don't know is. what movie it was for. Yeah. There, and then just a bunch of just improv. I mean, God, there's like, there's a hard drive somewhere <laughs> that he has yeah. with literally, prob- probably near like 100 hours of just Holy improvised shit. stuff. You know, everybody, like tons of people stopped in. I remember one day, Bill Frizzell and Greg Lee stopped in and we improvised for a couple hours. And then one day, Avon Kang was around and it was just kind of whoever was in town. Yeah. Otherwise, we were just doing stuff on our own. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, I, it'd be nice to hear that stuff. I, I don't know. I'd like <laughs> I don't to know hear what it. happened to it. It's just one of those things where, unless somebody has the time to sit down with it all and deal with it, it'll never get right finished. Yeah. Because there there were tons of improvs that probably were great. There must be some cool shit in there. Yeah. That just needed to be edited or overdubbed on or something. But sounds like a bit of a goldmine of of fun, cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, we did. During that same time, we did another soundtrack for Paul Thomas Anderson that never saw the light of day. It was uh, Keltner and I and John. Really? Just improvising. It actually went as far as John making string arrangements for it. He went to Abbey Road and overdubbed all these string arrangements, and then it all just disappeared. I don't know where it went. <laughs> really? <laughs> he, played, he played some for me. It sounded amazing, but... Like the know. the movie never came out either, or this was for a movie that did exist, but they just did something else? I don't think the movie ever came out. It was supposed to be a movie that he was going to base, the the movie was going to be based on a lot of music. Okay. Like the the, the music was going to be a centerpiece. Right. Well, his movies usually are, right? Yeah. Unless he did it, he did the movie and used a different composer. I don't know. I don't know what happened, but sure was fun. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. A lot of stuff I've done with John just kind of disappeared. And there's luckily a few things came out, but he strikes me as the kind of guy that that definitely like banks up a ton of stuff and then and then uses a small portion of it. He's a great improviser. He's he is amazing. Yeah, he it's a it's amazing how great he is. He just he's a killer drummer too, eh? I love his drumming. Amazing piano player, amazing guitar player. Plays the hell out of vibes. Yeah, plays you know sings, does amazing amazing string arrangements. But I remember he used to come and sit in with Critters Buggin' when we do gigs randomly. Did he live in Seattle at some point? No, he was just going up there a lot. Oh, okay. When I was living there. And um, we did so much stuff. I haven't actually seen him in like a couple of years. 
think he's just busy doing soundtracks or yeah i think that's his deal these days he's just doing soundtracks he's not doing largo anymore uh i think he does that once a month yeah oh okay you mentioned playing with keltner and i would i just wanted to ask you about uh him in particular like um both how you approached playing on a two drummer project uh i know you've done that at least a couple times that i can think of um but also just um your impression of him as a as a guy and as a musician uh and his impact on on drumming in pop and rock music in general with jim you know the very first time i ever played double drums with him i asked him if he liked playing with two drummers because <laughs> yeah. he he seems to do it a lot right and he told me he said actually i don't like playing with two drummers because <laughs> a lot of times the drummers uh think they have to play half of what they usually play to accommodate the other drummer. Right. And so you end up with two really good drummers playing half of the shit they'd usually play. Right. <laughs> so, right. So that was the first thing he said to me. And I was like, ah, interesting. Maybe I won't accommodate and just play the shit I play and see how it all works out. And that was on that Brad Meldow record. You know that record, Largo? Largo, yeah. I love that album. Yeah. Are you guys both on that whole record? John kind of set up a bunch of situations for Keltner and I, like there was one piano that was in the studio that was treated like a John Cage piano that had nuts and bolts in it. Yep. And, um, yeah. and Keltner played that on a couple pieces cause he didn't feel like playing drums. Really? <laughs> so, so, uh, it sounds like Gamelon or something or some kind of weird, weird, uh, percussion. Um, it's on, at least a couple songs on that record. And then there's a couple songs where we're both playing together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you know how he is. He has these, he, he makes up these really crazy drum kits that are percussion based almost. So, right. Yeah. You know, like he, he had, like, I remember on that, on that particular session, he had like this tiny little bass drum and all these shakers and goat toenails on his arms and extra cable hi-hats with, finger symbols on them. <laughs> it was just, wow. it was amazing. It was like, it was like a Dr. Seuss drum set or something. <laughs> and then I just had like a little four piece kit yeah. um, for most of it. But the majority of that, I mean, that record also was, we, we were in that studio for like a week. We improvised so much. There's so much music I bet. that never got released from those sessions. Actually, Charlie Hayden came down and Fiona Apple came down and we did like a standards day, like where where she sang standards, and and we did like double drums and double double bass. It was like a double rhythm section. Really? With Charlie Hayden. Well, yeah, with Charlie Hayden and Derek Olds. Yeah. Who's this amazing bass player? And uh, so that's around somewhere. I don't know where that's at. <laughs> wow. <laughs> One day it wow. might it might rear Ted. That was during um, the during the Largo sessions. Yeah, it was during that week, and then. Uh, there were so many people that came in and out. Um, so may- maybe one day they'll release like, you know, the Largo Sessions box set or something. With all the, yeah. All the improv. Yeah. Wow, that would be cool. It's been long enough. I mean, God, it's been like 20 years. Hasn't yeah. It? I mean, when well, was that? 2000? Yeah, I think it was probably 15, 16 years ago, something like that. Crazy, eh? One last record I just wanted to ask you quickly about because it's it's brand new, um, but it, but it it sounds amazing, and and I just was curious about the session for it was working with Mitchell Froom on the new Randy Newman record, which um, I know it's not like a drum heavy record or anything, but but uh, it it's sure like there's a couple pieces on there that are super complex and and crazy. I was just wondering what that session was like and whether you were tracking with the full symphony or or if it was like a just a band just playing with Blake Mills and, and those guys as the main band 
and then they overdubbed the strings. Do you remember how the, all that was done? Yeah, yeah, we just did it in Mitchell's backyard studio. Oh, okay. And it was uh, it was just Randy, Blake, and David Pilch on bass. Yeah. So it was Blake Mills on guitar, David yeah. Pilch on bass, and me. And uh, we tracked it as like a little band, and did it all. We just did it all live. No click tracks or anything. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> clearly. Um, and like that that crazy um, Dark Matter is like the nine minute long one that goes into all those crazy different parts. Like, was that something that you did live or was it done yeah. in sections? Wow. Yeah, we did it live. We had to kind of we had we had to rehearse it. Yeah. A few times, and then he spent, and then Randy spent the rest of the year doing orchestral arrangements for it. Yeah, they're beautiful. And then he had them overdub to us but okay but the whole idea mitchell had was to make it a small band and uh he, he requested that i use drums with cat skin heads nice and uh david pilch played uh gut string on his bass yeah and blake pretty much just played acoustic guitar so i mean it was all he wanted it to be really um, organic acoustic really. yeah or, yeah yeah yeah, nobody sticks out as being like a big feature, which is cool. Like it's it's such a a nice little unit, but but um, but musically, it's it's a, I, I think it's an incredible record, and it sounds great too. So I just what was curious about that. Yeah, Randy, man, he's obviously he's a genius. I mean, that guy. Yeah. I mean, from from the stories I heard that Mitchell was telling me about you know going to Randy's house after we had tracked the uh-huh. rhythm section stuff, just going to his house and just witnessing his process of. Uh, you know how his brain works about arrangements and and all that. It seems pretty fascinating. I, I would have loved to have been around for that. Just to... yeah, I bet. Like he really grew up in it, and and it's like uh, it's it's in his blood, obviously. But the the orchestration on that record is so cool. Yeah, yeah. He's he's pretty good at music. That guy. <laughs> <laughs> Wicked. Thanks so much for for taking the extra time and and letting me finish this with you and. And uh, talking about all this stuff, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me talk about myself. Yeah, hope to see you soon, and um, hope we get to play some tunes one of these days. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you later. Okay, Bye. see you, Matt. Bye. All right, that was my conversation with Matt Chamberlain. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a blast bringing it to you. Please go over to iTunes and leave some comments and some feedback and give us a good rating if you dig it. Tell all your friends and spread the word. Really appreciate it. We will see you next week for another fascinating episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 